Well, welcome again to City Life. Good to see all you guys here. If you just zoned out for the last five minutes, we're checking your phone during announcements, video announcements, maybe you fell asleep, whatever. Cliff Notes version, whether you're a male or a female, there is something for you, right? Between the ladies' brunch and the men's retreat, register for something. You can register for either of those at citylifeva.com. But uh, circle those janks on your calendar. If you're a female, you should have got a fall ladies' brunch uh, on the way in. And, and if, you got, uh, if you're a male, the base camp information, that retreat is at the info center. But all of us should have something to circle on our calendars. And then one other uh, thing, we're a, a family here. Hopefully, if you've been here for 10 minutes or 10 weeks, you sense that, that we are, we are a family of faith. We love each other. And I wanted to give a shout-out to the OZs who uh, – they made it public on Facebook. So I just want to – they uh, are – expecting. So I wanted to give this to, to David, uh, just because he's serving, busting his tail, and it says, be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead. And we're believing that for you guys. We're praying that for you guys. Matter of fact, while I'm like close to let's just pray for him right now. Lord God, we lift up David and Molly. Lord God, we lift up Molly even now as she's sick. God, touch her body. God, we pray that this would be a smooth pregnancy, God. And we pray for David. We pray for Molly. Pray against any anxiety, any worry. Lord God, thank you that you are calling them and equipping them for, for this role that they're going to pull off so excellently, God, as father and mother, leaning on your grace, leaning on this community. But God, we love them. We're rallying around them. We're praying for them. In Jesus' name, amen. You are welcome, sir. But yeah, so... Also, coming out of uh, that offering moment, just want to thank you again for your giving and generosity. You're not just giving to what we do at these four walls, right? Like you're giving to things like CareNet Pregnancy Center. You're giving to things like uh, Catalyst Effect. Thank you. It's literally what was on the tip of my tongue. Giving to things like uh, the Virginia Beach Justice Initiative that's fighting uh, sex trafficking, established footsteps that does ministry to women in strip clubs as well as women in prison. There's all these different ministries locally. And then also through what you sow here, we're, we're sowing into missionaries in Turkey, missionaries in China. And then even when we go to the DR annually and we're building latrines, we're building water filtration systems, and now we're working on an irrigation system for that same village, all of that comes through your generosity and your giving. So I wanted to thank you for that just again. But I also want to say whether you're going to the hills of the DR, right, to build latrines, or you're going to the gas station after service to get gas, you're living life on mission. Right? Whether you are going to the DR to teach Bible school with, with grade school kids or you're teaching kid life on a Saturday, you're living life on mission. Right? And the future of the church and the success of our mission is just as contingent on us being willing to go across the street with the good news as it is about us going across borders with the good news. But if you read scripture, a massive part of our mission's instruction is to care for the poor. To care for the poor, pray for the poor, have compassion on the poor. In Deuteronomy 15, 4, God tells Israel, there should be no poor among you. And it says of God's New Testament people, the church in Acts 4, 34, that there were no needy persons among them. See, caring for the poor is a part of our job description as followers of Christ. But we're not going to do it well unless we, we embrace the biblical definition of what is poverty. Right? In this series, we've reflected on Proverbs 18.21, the series High Definition. And Proverbs 18.21 says, words can bring death or life. And so often we make that verse about the totality of our conversations and the, the, the ideas that come out of our mouth. But what about each and every word? Right? Because our definition of words can derail the practice and the application if they don't line up with Scripture. Like tonight I want to look at the word poverty and how we look at poverty 
will affect the way that we steward what God's blessed us with. How we look at poverty will affect the way that we live generously, whether or not we do and how we live generously or how we give. Make no mistake, we're on mission. Right? This isn't Mission Impossible where Ethan Hunt gets the envelopes or the tapes, all those self-destructing messages where it's like, this is your mission if you choose to accept it. No, if you've accepted Christ, then guess what? He's given you the great commission, and there's things in the Bible that we're supposed to walk in. And one of those things is, is to care about poverty and care for the poor. But to do that, we have to have, a, again, a biblical understanding of, of poverty. How is it present in us? How is it present in our culture? How is it present in our world? Maybe you're asking the question even in your seat, am I rich or am I poor? Right? Are, are we rich or are we poor? And the answer is yes. <laughs> and we'll get to that in a second. But you know the World Bank is this partnership uh, uh, there's 189 countries involved. It's called the World Bank, and it fights poverty, and it was established after World War II, after the whole continent had just been ravaged by war. And so they financed and, and helped rebuild countries like France, and they were so successful that they're like, we should take this global. And so they took what they did with France and these countries in Europe, and they went to India, they went to countries in Africa, and they tried to do the exact same thing in all these different contexts, and it didn't work. Right, fixing poverty was so confounding that after a few decades, finally in 2000, they went to poverty experts, the poor, those living in poverty. And they asked them firsthand, how do you, how do you define poverty? Because, again, the definition will determine the application and the solution. And what they were doing wasn't working. So, like, maybe our definition is off. So they went to 60,000 people from 60 different countries, and they asked them, what is poverty to you? How do you define poverty? Right? And their results were published in a document called Voices of the Poor. So their answers, common ones were inferiority, shame, low self-esteem, alienation, loneliness, lack of contact, lack of control. They spoke of poverty in an overwhelmingly psychological and social sense. It's this condition, hopelessness, helplessness, loneliness. Right? And in our culture, we often think of poverty as what? Primarily a lack of material things, right? If you lack food, you lack clothing, you lack income, health care, wealth, clean water, housing, then that's poverty. And material lack and material poverty is, is very real, and it should be ministered to, but it's also a symptom. It's a symptom of something that's deeply rooted, something that's psychological, it's relational, and it's spiritual. We have to get the diagnosis right, or like the World Bank our solutions and our application will fail. And that's why every year before I take a team to the Dominican Republic, we go through a book called When Helping Hurts. Because the premise of that book is if you don't get the symptom right, everything you do to help is actually going to hurt rather than help the people you're trying desperately to help. And the book teaches how the Bible shows that God is, is fundamentally relational, right? There's been God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship through eternity. And then he creates us in his image, right? And we are built and hardwired for relationship. And in this book, it breaks down how there are four primary relationships that we're created for. The first is a relationship with God, right? God himself to know God and bring honor and glory to God in all we do. And then our relationship with self, that we have inherent value, we have inherent dignity because we've been created by God. And then there's a relationship that we're called to have with others, right, to, to see the, the, the image of God in them and love them as we love ourselves. And then there's relationship even with creation, 
where we're called to steward and manage creation on behalf of God. And this involves preserving, protecting, even developing potential in God's good creation. Now, there wasn't a dime in Eden, right? There's no cash registers, no exchange of monies, no economy in Eden. And yet at the fall of man in Eden, poverty broke into the world, right? Because there was a lack of one thing that we were created for above all else, and that was relationship. Right, divisions between Adam's relationship with God, Adam's relationship with Eve, Adam's relationship even with the ground as he was going to work and toil. And what does this poverty look like now? Right, like say in poor countries, there's poverty with God. You know, keep away from God out of fear or this sense of isolation or this condition, hopelessness. There's a poverty of, of self, poverty of being where there's just a, sh- a shame that you carry. Poverty of community where there's exploitation of the poor, a failure to see the image of God in people. And then even a poverty of stewardship. That when you have this condition, hopelessness, laziness sets in. Not even because of character, but just because of the situation and hopelessness you're in. We see that these relationships are broken. And cultures and entire systems become broken as well. Sin's not just a personal issue. Sin becomes systemic because broken people make broken systems. Then it's all because of broken relationships. But where the fall of man in Genesis fractured these relationships, the gospel's about restoring them reconciling them. But if we, again, if we don't properly diagnose the problem, we won't bring the right solution. So the prescription and the solution is not just to give the poor more material accumulation and assets. The middle and upper class of America shows us that. Like, that's not the solution. The middle and upper class of America is marked by high rates of divorce, addiction, mental illness, substance abuse. The solution isn't just more things. Right? The, the, the accumulation of assets without a gospel context just leads to what we have in America, which is a God complex. Right? Where there's a fracturing of those relationships, but it's almost like the other direction. With God, we got it. Right? I'm taking care of my family. I'm taking care of me. I'm able to bring in an income. Our security is in our, our bank account or our retirement plan to the point where God can become an afterthought. We even come to church and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then we live as functional atheists because our trust isn't, our hope isn't in God. We, we got it covered. So we say we believe in God, but we rarely turn to Scripture. We say we're a Christian, but we rarely pray. You know, we, we, we say we follow him, but we rarely are generous or give. All these different ways. And then there's a poverty even with creation. Sometimes it's laziness, but sometimes in our culture, it's more often being a workaholic, which is just as much a sin as being lazy. Because if you don't rest, it just shows a lack of trust in God. God gives us this command to rest because he wants us to trust in him. He's the provider. And, you know, I feel this stress. I got to provide for my family. No, God is the ultimate provider, and I trust in him, so I find time to rest. There's a relationship with others. Like our, our culture is so individualistic because we're self-made and we become self-centered. I bet if we did a survey in here, you know, how many of us know the, the neighbor's name across the street to each side? Like, we just, we live in our bubbles. It's one of the, the striking things. Every time we go to the DR, I probably shared it a hundred times. Like, their toddlers are just halfway up the street. Nobody's even worried about it because everybody's looking out for everybody's kid because everybody knows everybody. They have a wealth of relationship, a wealth of relationship with others and community. And then lastly, self. You know, some of us do deal with, with shame, right? Some of us do deal with not feeling good enough. But again, sometimes it's it's self-image in the opposite direction, where we get a God complex. We become entitled. We become prideful. So we, we can have all the money in the world and still have a poverty of relationship. That's how I could say at the beginning, we are both rich and poor. We may have two cars, 
enough food on the table, but we experience poverty in the other direction. The question I ask myself when I come home from the DR is, man, am I so poor that all I have is my, my money? Do I have, am I rich in all these other areas? We have to evaluate our definition of poverty, or excuse me, elevate it from the mere symptoms to the biblical definition. And again, when you look at that survey from the World Bank, it's really just raising it to the definition that's global and outside of our material culture. Our consideration of poverty will affect the way that we see ourselves, it'll affect the way we see our world, it'll affect the way that we see our wealth. You know, Jesus, after his encounter with the rich young ruler, maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not, Jesus encounters this rich young ruler, and in their exchange, the rich young ruler basically chooses his stuff over his Savior that was standing right in front of him. And when he walks away, Jesus turns to the people that were left there, and he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. And let me tell you, there's not many verses in Scripture that give me pause as much as that one. Because it's one of those verses where it's like, he might as well have a bullseye on me. Like, I think of the, another one that gives me pause in James where it's like not everybody should be desired to be a teacher because there's a higher judgment. And then I read that, I'm like, man, you know, you read this about the, the, the camel and the, and the entrance to heaven, and, and you think, man, the path is already narrow, right? Jesus already says it's not going to be a pie in the sky by and by, and it's like, does, does wealth make it harder, right? It's the question I ask. I mean, this thought process is why people take vows of poverty, Right? And you read the story of the rich young ruler, and you, and you read his response, and you think, man, is it okay to be rich? And when you read passages like this, like we were talking about in the myth-busting series, and they raise questions, and you're, you're wrestling with the text, man, like I said before, go to the greater context and content of Scripture. Because if you read Scripture from cover to cover, there are plenty of evil rich people in the Bible. Right? You, you, you go back to Exodus with Pharaoh, he's got the hardest heart in all of Scripture. He's trying to wipe out an entire generation of Israelites, right, when Moses is saved. And you go to King Herod, New Testament, similar, right? Evil man, all the power in the world. And you go back to the Old Testament, Queen Jezebel, so evil that there were missiles named after her in World War II, right? And, and, and you even just do a skim through First Kings and Second Kings, and you realize that God's people weren't immune, right? God's people build a kingdom. Their own kings, these wealthy men, right, they too become evil and forget God. So you just realize, is that it? Like the cliches kind of flow from there. Like, oh, you know what they say, power corrupts. Money's the source of all evil. It's the root of all evil. But if money is the root of all evil, then poor people should be virtuous. Like if you don't have any, then we're good, right? But you see in Scripture, that's not the case. Like you look at Proverbs. Proverbs makes it clear that just because you're poor doesn't mean you're virtuous. Right? It speaks to the poor whose vice is sloth, the one's too lazy to work. The ones who only talk but never act. The ones who squander it when they get it. That jump into get-rich-quick schemes or blow it on being a drunkard or a glutton. It's all in Proverbs. <laughs> over and over again. Being poor doesn't make you holy any more than being rich makes you evil. So the question that gets asked, should Christians be rich or poor, it's the wrong question. That's why the Bible doesn't answer it. The question that's at the heart of the Bible is, is God's people, are God's people, holy or unholy? Right, when God gives his law to the Israelites in the Old Testament, the heart of Leviticus, at the heart of that book, and really the heart of the whole Bible, is this command, be holy as I am holy. So the question is, whether you're rich or poor, have a lot or a little, are you holy? And if you go through Scripture, again, there's both holy poor people and holy rich people. Like You look at Joseph, Jesus' dad. Right, he's from Nazareth. 
where it's such a poor community, people are like, can anything good come from there? And he's working a blue-collar job as a carpenter trying to support his family. And when they go to dedicate Jesus at the temple, they don't give a, a sheep or a goat. They, there's a special provision for poor people, and they were able to offer a bird instead, right? They, they were not wealthy, and yet they were holy. Right? Jesus was poor, but he was holy. Joseph was poor, but God trusted him to raise his son. You read the Christmas story. He shows character and compassion, and it's a poor guy. You don't have to pivot from that name, though, and you see holy, rich people. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament, second only to Pharaoh at that time, wealthy as mess, but faithful to God. Or, or in the New Testament, back to the New Testament, there's Joseph of Arimathea, right? Matthew describes him as a wealthy man in Matthew 27, 57. It says he was a rich man from Arimathea who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And this is the man that buys the temple that Jesus is laid in. And then we see. Right? There are holy people that have money. There are holy people without money. And that's just with the name Joseph, right? <laughs> that's just with one name in Scripture. You can do more digging. But what about Jesus? Like, consider Jesus. Jesus himself was both holy and rich and holy and poor. You look at one verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where it says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he can make you rich. It's a powerful verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. See, Jesus was rich into eternity past, and he's going to be rich into eternity future, yet he's perfectly holy. And Jesus, when he walked on earth, was, was poor. Right? He, he too came from Nazareth. He had no place to lay his head during his ministry, and yet he was holy, perfectly holy. Again, what the Bible stresses isn't should we be rich or should we be poor. The question the Bible cares about is should we look like Jesus? And the answer is always unequivocally, yes. The question isn't just are you rich or poor? We're called to look like Jesus, whether we are broke or we are balling. <laughs> whether we look like Joseph, Jesus' dad, or we look like Joseph of Arimathea, we're called to look like Jesus. But let's, let's be honest, guys. So I got spit on me. <laughs> Most of us are Joseph of Arimathea. Like, we're, we're blessed. We're rich. The United Nations did a report, I think it was like 2010, where the average American lives off $90 a day, right? So you think, okay, $90 a day. You know, one billion people on planet Earth live with less than a dollar a day. Almost half of the population of the planet, almost three billion people live under $2 a day. Right? I don't share that so, like, we could have a guilt trip, but we should just be aware that we're so blessed, when the Bible gives warnings to people with wealth, we should take heed. Like when Jesus says this about the camel and the needle, we should be like, oh, pause, <laughs> time out. That there's a camel-sized blockade on the entrance to heaven that's like needle big, and, and he's addressing people with wealth. So the question looms large, like, okay, if I have wealth, right, how, how do I live holy? I want to be among the holy rich. I want to be the, the rich that God can use, and then I see God in heaven, and Paul in 1 Timothy 6, where I just want to park it for the rest of the evening, not the rest of the evening, the rest of our time together. I know some of y'all are hungry, like me. But he gives us a recipe, because I'm hungry, to do just that, that ends with the rich experiencing true life. Like, that's what I want. Like, regardless of whether I, I'm, I'm, I got a bank account that's full or empty, I want to experience the life that's truly life. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6. But the verse that precedes that one is the one that's often misquoted. Taken from context, right? Money is the root of all evil. So let's, let's start there. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
verses 6 through 10. Paul's writing Timothy, and he says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. I could stop there, and we could all go home. (laughs) After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So we see that phrase in in its context and it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if you actually go to the Greek, the way it would even be translated even closer is the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. So maybe you've heard this point too before. Maybe from a pulpit or a friend where it's like, yeah, but that's what it really says. Right? It's not money that's evil. It's the love of money. So it's okay to have money. And so you don't pause and you just keep going. But again, let's be honest. Who hates money? I might not love money, but I love that it helps me provide for my family. Right? If I hated money... I wouldn't try to keep my account full of it, right? Nobody truly hates money. That's why materialism and greed, it's, to me, it's, it's almost different than other sins because it hides so well, right, in our blind spot. As a pastor, in almost a decade of being a youth pastor and a pastor, people have confessed all kinds of things to me. Nobody has ever confessed to me, I'm struggling with greed. Like, nobody, ever. Because we think, oh, I ain't got that much, Right? That's why Jesus shouted at the crowds in Luke 12, watch out for all kinds of greed, right? Because the deception of the enemy is often not like a a trap that we can see right in front of us that snaps in an instant. It's not like a full frontal attack and we don't do like a complete 180 in the moment. You know, Paul says that those that, what, crave money, long to be rich, and love money, it's a slow fade. They wander from the truth. They drift You know, Paul for most of the New Testament, Paul and most of the New Testament, when it talks about the devil, it's for only one of two reasons. To remind us that he's defeated and to warn us of his deceptions. The the ways that he uses half-truths to derail us and, and our own wealth can be a tool and a scheme of the enemy. We're either gonna manage and steward our wealth and lead ourselves or we'll be pulled into spiritual poverty as we wander led by wealth. And it's in this spiritual poverty where we see that those four relationships become broken as we looked at. You know, it was the Brazilian archbishop and activist Dom Helder Camara who said, I used to think when I was a child that Christ might have been exaggerating when he warned about the dangers of wealth. Today I know better. I know how very hard it is to be rich and still keep the milk of human kindness. You know, praise God that these truths Paul gives Timothy and truths that are in Scripture, they show us the way. God doesn't just say, hey, look, man, it's like, Trying to get around a, a camel into the eye of a needle and say, good luck. <laughs> no, Scripture helps us and guides us. And this passage in 1 Timothy 6 is important. It's one where Paul is writing to Timothy. And I think it's the New Living, which we're looking at, which says, teach them. But, you know, the NIV says, command them. This isn't just some passing thought Paul's giving Timothy. It's a command that he's giving Timothy as a pastor to tell the wealthy among his congregation. And again, when we hear that, as Americans, our ears should perk up. That this is a command. These are commands for us. So what does he say? Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. It's a little further on in the chapter. It says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good 
They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Or it's another translation where it says the life that is truly life. So I want to look at four things that Paul hits on. And the first is simply God is trustworthy. God is reliable. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust, their relying should be on God. You know, the Great Depression, if you study when it happened, on the day it happened in 1929 and in the time following that, there was an incredible spike in suicides. So many people taking their life because their security and their hope, which was put in money, was taken away, right? And it was dramatic. But you know what's wild to me is if you, if you study the Great Depression, as it went on into the 30s, the suicide rate actually declined below what the norm was as the Great Depression went on in the 1930s. It's almost like the opposite of what Biggie said, more money, more problems. It was like less money, less problems. That as people had less things to worry about, material things to stress, they could focus on relationships, right? The life that is truly life. And as the Great Depression went on, the, the suicide rate actually went down below what it was before the Great Depression. Luke 12, verses 29 through 30 says, don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. You know, what happens when your thoughts are no longer dominated by your needs because you're trusting in a reliable God? You can instead, like Philippians 2 said, begin to look to the needs of others. You can begin to be his hands and feet in a, in a new way. Right? To trust God to provide is to trust him enough to live generously with what he's given and what he's giving. And that's the second point Paul hits on, that all we have is a gift from God. He says, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. He would have dug, dug the song lyric that says, I've never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch. <laughs> like, Job, it's like the words of Job, naked I came into this world, naked I'll leave, right? Everything we get in between our birth and our death, it's, it's really God's grace. Even our breath, our next breath is given to us by the grace of God. But you know, entitlement, which rages in our culture, goes against enjoyment, strips us of contentment, which Paul says is a great gain. It affects, again, our stewardship and our generosity. Entitlement says, yeah, I came into this world with nothing, and everything I've got now, I've earned, right? This is mine. I earned it. That's entitlement. But you know what flies in the face of verses like Psalm 24:1, which says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? The world and all its people belong to him. Another verse that I think of often is Deuteronomy 8:18, where it says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You know, whether in life you produce little or you've produced much, we're blessed. We are richly blessed as God richly gives to us. If, G if God would have sent Jesus, right, gave his son because he so loved the world and he so loved me, and that's all he ever gave, I'd be good, right? I'd be good because my eternity is set. But you know what the best prescription is for this insidious pole of wealth? The most effective way to avoid the camel and hit the bullseye on the needle is to realize it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. The bank account, the tax returns, the paycheck, it's all what God has graced me with. He even gives me the ability to produce wealth. I am richly blessed. So let me ask, now what? 
we see in this passage that our, our task is stewardship. Because the Bible wants you to be rich. Right? That's at the heart of the prosperity gospel in some circles. That to not believe that God wants you to be rich and affluent in this life would show a lack of faith. God wants you to be rich. Just in this verse, it's rich in good deeds. Right? Generous and willing to share. The task, what God wants from us, is stewardship. Now, the word steward is one that we don't use a whole lot anymore, but it's the word Jesus uses to speak to the highest-ranking servant of a wealthy landowner, one put in charge of an entire estate in the master's absence. And a steward, by definition, is supposed to be representative or a representative who reflects the heart and character of the one who put the items in their possession. Jesus teaches in Luke 12, 42, he says, he's teaching a parable, and it says at the end that the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise steward whom the master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So shortened version, <laughs> blessed is the steward who is found doing what? Giving. So he'll be made ruler so that he can give more. Right? God's stewards aren't stingy. They're, they're generous. They give. You know, in my life, sometimes I've, I've viewed uh, stewardship as being tight-fisted with resources. Because after all, they're, they're not mine. It's almost like I want caution. I want to lean more on the cautious side than on the risky side because I'm being a steward of somebody else's stuff. But again, the stewards should reflect the heart and character of the one they represent. And God is a loving, generous God. Look no further than this passage where it says he richly gives us all we need for enjoyment. Look no further than the John 3.16 where he loved the world so much that he gave the overflow of God's love is to give and be generous. And again, sometimes I, I'm guilty of this. I'll pit stewardship against generosity. But if you're a responsible steward, you'll live a life of radical generosity. You know, it would be irresponsible to take this and give away everything when we go home, right? And the Bible says to, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, right? So don't go home and get rid of every dime so you got mouths to feed. But the reality is this that I hope we all hear. When caring for our blessings eclipses our care for people, then we've begun to drift, like Paul talks about. Like, like when our care for our stuff runs laps around our care for people, we've drifted. All right, we've drifted. Loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, again, that's part of our job description. We opened with Deuteronomy 15.4, Acts 4.34. But I was reading Galatians this week, and in Galatians, Paul gives the account of his first years of ministry. And after three years, he finally meets the apostles in Jerusalem, and he basically submits. Here's, I feel called to the Gentiles. Here's what I'm teaching. He's basically humbly submitting that to the apostles. And they say, look, that checks out great. That's awesome. You go minister to the Gentiles. We've been ministering to the Jews. They say, hey, but one thing. They could have chose anything. Right? One command, one thing to instruct him in, one thing to say, hey, watch this. They say in Galatians 2.10 that he keep helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. You know, could it be that the fact that care for the poor was at the heart of all these leaders in the early church? And that's why the early church exploded with growth. It's Isaiah 58.10 where it's promised and prophesied that if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Like the recipe for revival in that prophecy by Isaiah is to follow Paul's command to be rich in good deeds and live generously. You know, what could explain a lot 
the condition of the church in America is one out of every four Christians who go to church in America right now, one out of every four don't give a dime. And I'm not talking tithes and offerings. I'm talking like give a dime to anything, right? Compassion International, sponsoring a kid, anything at all. One in four don't, don't do anything. We're a rich people in a rich culture that's drifted from our call to be rich in giving and live generously. But tonight isn't all about, right, materialism. It's not all about material solutions or giving money. Again, that's just a symptom. The last thing we see in this passage, and we see in Scripture, and we've seen from the start tonight, the greatest gift is relationship. That's wealth. Relationship with God, relationship with others, that's true wealth. Paul speaks to the life that is truly life. And to me, when I read that, it echoes Jesus' declaration where he says, I came to give life and life abundant. It's like, it's life, but let me, let me be clear. This is the best life. And Jesus goes on to define eternal life in John 17, 3, as knowing God, the Father, and knowing Jesus Christ whom he sent. Being able to have relationship with God, that's, that's life to the full. That's wealth that I want. Life is about relationship, first vertically with God, but then horizontally with those around us. Jesus says in John 13 that his disciples will be marked for what or by what? Their love for one another, each other their brothers and sisters, that there would be relationship, connection, community in a world that's so full of division and isms and schisms and racism and sexism, classism, tribalism, nationalism, that in the midst of all that, the church would be a place of relationship, connecting, caring, and compassion. You know, the greatest gift that we've ever received is the love and compassion of God through Jesus Christ. We're called to give love and compassion in response. Let those that have freely received, freely give. The words of Jesus. Are you rich or poor? But the better question is, how are you in terms of your relationships? If I could have the worship team come up, how's your relationship with, with others? Right? Is there, are there brothers and sisters in your life that you're doing life with? Do you have people in your, in your life that you walk with? Right? They, they give you encouragement when you need encouragement, give you accountability when you need accountability. Do you know your neighbors, right? How's your relationship with creation? Is it rich? Is it poor? Right? Is your poverty marked by feeling just a loss of purpose and sometimes you lose your drive? Or is it your drive is, is too much to where you're wearing yourself out and you're not trusting in God to provide? And that speaks to your relationship with self. Is that rich or is that poor? Maybe it's struggling with, self-esteem and shame or seeing your worth, but maybe it's, again, the God complex that comes when you're doing well, right? You feel entitled. But ultimately, the biggest question is, how's your relationship with God? All these other things flow from that. Are we living like, again, functional atheists, where we give him lip service, we give him 90 minutes on the weekend, but then we live as if we forget about him? What are we trusting in? What's your hope in? Is it in Jesus Christ and the cross, or is it in the security you find from the things you have? If that's stripped away, would you still have hope? You know, we have wealth, but let's not let it be something we cling to <laughs> out of hope and security. May we cling to God alone. And may we be stewards that are rich in generosity, that reflect the heart of God. My prayer for 
you guys is my prayer for myself that I would never be so poor that all I have is my money. Never be so poor that all I have is my material things. I want to look like Jesus, who is both rich and poor and always holy. The question isn't whether we should be rich or poor. The question is, should we look like Jesus? And the answer is always yes. So Jesus, tonight again, we, we set our eyes on you. And we're going to close tonight in worship, setting our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith. But you know, I'm not going to ever stop talking about wealth as long as I'm your pastor. Sorry. Because <laughs> we have it. The enemy uses it. But guess what? We get to use it. To reflect the heart of God. To show our trust in him. To build his church. To love others. To help the less fortunate. And ultimately to glorify Jesus. And Jesus, as we stand tonight, if we could stand as we go into worship, we thank you that, again, you give everything we need for enjoyment. And maybe sometimes we think of all those things we would like and we might want, but Jesus, if, if you came and died for each one of us individually, and that was the only gift you ever gave us, we would have enough reason to praise you into eternity. We would have enough reason to worship you and never stop. But God, we thank you that you're such a, a good father, that you lavish good gifts on us. But God, we never want to be a people that, that seeks you for your hand and the things you have for us and don't seek your face, don't seek your heart. So tonight we close in worship. Again, Jesus, setting our eyes on you. And Holy Spirit, if you laid your finger on any one of those relationships, whether it's with community and we're living isolated, whether it's with self and, and we're dealing with pride or creation, we realize we're not resting. We realize that we're not working. Or God, if it's relationship with you, and we've never stepped into relationship with you, never uh, said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord and Savior over my life. Man, if the Holy Spirit's pricked your heart in any of those ways, then tonight we would love to pray for you. Anthony and Dustin are here to pray for you. I would love to pray for you here. But otherwise, let's set our eyes on Jesus Christ again and thank him and praise him. God, we thank you that you are generous and you give, that you love the world so much that you gave yourself. You love me so much. Fill in the blank. You love Anthony so much, Tara so much, Dustin so much, that you sent your son to die for him. And we thank you for that love. God, help us to be disciples that are marked by that love and our love for one another, living generously and giving generously. In Jesus' name, let's worship.